Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 37. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Bobby the Blitz Ellsworth, frontman for legendary thrash metal act Overkill. Overkill ranks highly on the list of thrash metal shows that were essential to my formative years as a teenage thrasher. I saw Overkill open for Motorhead and Slayer back in 1988. Slayer was touring South of Heaven, and I've been a fan even longer. From classic records like Taking Over and Field of Fire, to the badass music video for Hello from the Gutter, to this current string of killer releases the band has been putting out, The Electric Age, White Devil Armory, The Grinding Wheel, and the most recent album, The Wings of War, all of which have been released just in the last few years. I was stoked to talk to Bobby about Metallica and the formative years of thrash metal, And just before we get into the episode, I want to send out the biggest of well wishes to Metallica co-founder, Megadeth frontman, and thrash metal architect, Dave Mustaine, who on June 17th, 2019, announced to the world that he is battling throat cancer. His doctors are giving him a 90% chance of recovery, and myself and everyone involved with Pop Curse and Speak and Destroy is keeping him in our prayers. It's worth noting that both previous Speak and Destroy guest Chuck Billy of Testament and Bobby the Blitz Ellsworth, the guy you're about to listen to, have beaten cancer. So that's two iconic thrash metal singers who were diagnosed with the big C and beat it. Mustaine certainly won't be far behind. Dave, a lot of people are rooting for you. Many people around the world love you and wish you nothing but the best. So here it is, my conversation with Bobby the Blitz Ellsworth of Overkill. This is Speak and Destroy. I like to start these by going all the way back, and you know, obviously, I know a bit about you, so I, I know that uh, you know, Queen, Sabbath, Priest, Maiden, all that stuff was important to you. Uh, but I believe um, Alice Cooper was your kickoff, if I'm not mistaken. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, you know, falling in love with music and how it, where that came from, and you know, did you have family members that were playing stuff around the house, or how did you first get inspired? You know, I, I think it's um, with regard to me singing or falling into that, uh, as we were just talking about uh, heritage. Uh, my mother is one of 13 uh, first generation Americans. Uh, my grandparents are from the Emerald Isle. So when you have nine sisters, you understand harmony. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, my, my grandparents would sit around the fireplace and ask all the their daughters to get up and uh, and sing the old Irish lullabies. And uh, so for me, it was always something really <clears throat> just taken for granted uh, that it was always there. Now, obviously, I don't have this beautiful Irish tenor's voice, but I never had a fear of standing in front of people and singing. It was just natural in my family. And my mom actually cut a couple of records. She, uh, she had done some, oh, God, she was kind of on the local scene in New Jersey. She was out of Bayonne. Um, but, but sang at the Copa with Tommy Dorsey, um, and a guy oh, named wow. Dennis Day. Yeah. Um, you know, she was brought in as one of the local talents. They would do that from city to city. 
uh, places, bringing somebody that was kind of a local uh, mid-level star. Uh, but she cut a couple of records uh, back in the 50s. Um, and uh, so for me, you know, it was there already. Um, I, I remember her voice uh, singing to me prior than prior to her talking to me. So it was uh, it was just something natural that I grew up with. But, uh, you know, acclimated to the rock and roll and the dirty side, you know, as soon as I could, uh, as soon as I could get down to uh, uh, whatever the equivalent of Walmart was, then I guess Kmart or Caldors or something like that, buy, buy records that uh, even if I had to hide them under the bed, I would, <laughs> I would have them. So. <laughs> Um, and thus Alice Cooper. <laughs> right? Yeah, I grew up in Indiana, so I think we had Zayers, uh, was a, a department store that had records, and then, yeah, of course, Sears and JCPenney and somewhere. Uh, we'd go find that, you know, looking for Kiss records in that, in that otherwise, uh, wasteland of a, of a place. Yeah, sure, sure. But you gotta find, you know, you gotta, you'll find somewhere to, to feed your habit, you know, and if it was uh, riding the 10 speed down there or the stingray, just so you can thumb through the records, it was, uh, that was a good day. Right, right. So yeah, so how did that, um, that first Alice record get in your hands? Did you, uh, did you see, was it something you sought out because of the album cover or, you know, how did that, uh, come across your radar? It was the album cover, uh, you know, matched up with uh, one of the, uh, uh, probably the visuals from one of the early rock magazines. I mean, it could have been Hit Parader or something that preceded that. Um, you know, just to see pictures of Alice Cooper and, and what his PR was all about. It wasn't just a picture of the band. There'd always be something that was absolutely bizarre. And I think anybody who, you know, had the, had the cojones to put out a song called Dead Babies <laughs> when I was like 14. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> he got my attention. <laughs> and, and 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 who would have thought that he'd grow up to be a, a nice Christian man playing golf? <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like it's like uh, it, it's almost like uh, Alice and Auntie Alice. You know, he's the it's the Auntie Alice and and <laughs> but it's uh, you know I think he's uh, he's one of the longstanding uh, good guys uh, in the industry. Absolutely. And, and, uh, the, you know, and one of the closest I, I've ever got to him was just a quick hello. We were, uh, and it was just recently we were in, God, we were playing Loud Park in Japan and it's a fantastic festival. And, uh, and he was on right after us and I was coming off the stage sweating with no shirt on and walking down the corridor to the dressing room. And he came out in this like, uh, crushed velvet, uh, you know, smoking jacket or waistcoat rather, uh, <laughs> heading to the stage, taps me on the shoulder and goes, Good set, kid. And I was thinking to myself, kid? <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take it. Well, he, was, um, he was obviously watching it on the, on the closed circuit, the dressing room. And I was, uh, it's, it's actually one of my uh, prouder moments uh, later on in uh, the history of this band. And Alice Cooper actually got to uh, watch a set of Overkill after I was into him since I was, you know, 14 years old. Hell yeah. And then, yeah, there, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of the other early stuff for you, you know, the Queen and Sabbath and Priest and Maiden, and uh, I believe the Ramones were in there somewhere for you. I'm sure the Ramones were ours, man. I mean, you could you could go Ramone spotting in uh, on St. Mark's Place. I mean, when that punk scene exploded, <clears throat> I remember being uh, you know of the age to to get a, a short line bus into uh, into New York City to a place called the Port Authority. It's about an hour, hmm. and then. A subway down in the village, and, and that's the place to hang out when you're 16, 17, 18, even in your 20s. And, you know, you can see the Ramones over on St. Mark's Place uh, around a, you know, 
a clothing store called Trash and Vaudeville or where the Mud Club was. And, but there was all sorts of stuff going on down there. There was, you know, Iggy Pop was in town, you know, during that era. Uh, the Dead Boys had uh, moved here soon after from Cleveland. So it was an awesome, awesome punk scene. It's something to be, you know, uh, I think back and say, you know, one of the reasons that the band I'm in exists is because that punk scene, you know, infused uh, that generation of us with, with that energy. Yeah, you know, I had uh, Michael Alago on the podcast a while back, and yeah, he got his start doing a Dead Boys fanzine, <laughs> like, and I think maybe ran their a fan club for them or something. And yeah, we talked a lot about that that era and that. I mean, what a, it's amazing the the fact that you could throw a stone and hit somebody from the Ramones or the Dead Boys. You know, once upon a time, it's just a unique thing that uh, clearly isn't going to happen again, and in, in that quite the same way. Johnny Johnny Thunders out on the on 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 Eighth uh, Eighth Street, yeah. <laughs> holding his boots from the New York Dolls. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like holy shit! It was like it was like living in some kind of a psychotic, uh, drug hazed dream. And it's uh, you know uh, it was just such a cool scene to be uh, to be youngster. And I mean, it was one of the reasons I you know when I went to school after high school, I went to Manhattan College uh, because it was right on the one line, and I could get downtown you know real quick uh, or down to the village uh to to see gigs or to you know feel like i was feel like i was part of that but that you know my choice of going into uh, the city to college was was based a lot on the music scene oh that's awesome yeah and it's like i also think about that era you know once upon a time you could have seen sid vicious out on bail doing like a solo residency somewhere <laughs> like <you> know, <laughs> slop, slopping his way through like you know some 50 standards <laughs> right, 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 spitting at the audience and cursing at them, playing exactly. it out of tune, but exactly. everybody loving it. <laughs> exactly. So at some point, uh, you know, obviously when we sort of connect the dots with Overkill and Metallica, aside from both being massively influential bands in terms of the thrash movement and just metal in America in general, there are also some crossover where, you know, you both were part of Megaforce at one point. Overkill was one of the elite bands that had a major label deal um, in the 80s, uh, you know, coming out of that scene. Where did the, you first sort of intersect and cross paths? You know, when did Metallica get on your radar and you became familiar? We actually, uh, I, I th they had been signed prior to us. They they had, um, you know, the demos, uh, you know, Metal Up Your Ass, No Life, um, were out, and I think that that's when we became available, uh, aware of them. That was, uh, you know, the tape trading days. Yeah. You know, we'd pick up those fanzines, and you'd find, you know, where to send away for something. And a couple of the guys in the band, like Rat and Didi, were uh, they were very into that whole scene. I mean, they knew everybody. I mean, that, this was not the age of instant information. It was, you know, these were Xeroxed fanzines that, you know, would be sent to them uh, via the mail, and that's how we got our hands on demos. But, uh, uh after um, after they released Kill 'Em All, they had come uh, east to do some gigs, and uh, there was a place here. It's uh, it's up where where the three states meet: uh, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. It's a it's a city called Port Jervis, and there was a guy we had worked with up there um, at a place called the State Theater, and he put us in the opening slot for Metallica. So I think that that's our first handshake with them um at that time we so we we had opened that show for them and we were an unsigned band and they had, had obviously already released their first record 
And then, do you remember? Uh, it's by the way, you mentioned that fanzine network and tape trading. You know, a, a buddy of mine likes to call that secret knowledge. You know, the world where you couldn't just become an instant expert on everything. You had to, uh, if you were into something, you had to find some like-minded people and and yeah, discover. You know, this like underground network of of information that's being passed back and forth. Um, do you remember kind of uh, you know hearing them for the first time or, or going to see them for the first time? Well, hearing them, I heard them um, in Staten Island, New York, at uh, where we rehearsed at uh, Bobby Gustafson's house. We were in the basement. Um, I think Rat actually brought uh, Rat or Dee Dee brought their their first demo in, and that's when we you know we threw it in the cassette player, the boombox, uh, and listened to it. And it was obviously groundbreaking. I mean, you know, you know, for us to to think, you know, obviously we weren't doing what they were doing. Uh, I think it was, uh, we were just, uh, let's say cousins, um, with regard to what our approaches were, but not, not identical. But I, but I think, uh, that it was undeniable that it was special, uh, right away that somebody actually, uh, had, let's say had started the template for what was to follow. And I think it was obvious that to all four of us who heard it in the room that first night. That's interesting because, uh, you know, in terms of, the creation of a musical movement or a subgenre or something like that. I mean, certainly there were a handful of you who were operating with the same basic ingredients, you know, whether it's new wave or British heavy metal and, and punk and things like that. And, and sort of hitting upon something similar, but each with your own kind of unique flavor to it. And I always find that fascinating, like looking back with different movements in in music, you know, across genres where, you can have people separated sometimes by an ocean, sometimes by, you know, on different coasts uh, that independently of one another are developing something special. And then, yeah, I imagine it's a lightning bolt moment when you're like, oh, these guys are doing something very similar to what we're doing. And we're all kind of hitting on this unique thing right around the same time. You know, I think, I think it's representative of the era. And that's what gives it its, its purity, you know, <clears throat> makes it very real that, you know, in San Francisco, uh, in, in New York, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, uh, in Essen, Germany at that time, somewhere in the UK, that there was a, such a similarity when there was no instant information. It was when the world was still a really big place uh, where you had to, you, you know, you wanted to connect with people. You had to do it uh, via the telephone or snail mail, you know, um, it, or, or fly there. Uh, but it wasn't about... Uh, you know, getting uh, a 400 likes a day on, you know, for, for your demo. I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you want to fucking like somebody go, you know, you shake their hand and they say, man, I got the demo. I got power in black or, you know, if it was a metallic fan, I got the, you know, I got no life to leather. That's, that's a, that's fucking great. There, there's your like, you know, when it's, uh, when it's face to face. So I think it was really unique that it, it, uh, that it represented that era with uh, such similarity while that, while that template was being created in different places around the world. I think that's something that, uh, you know, people listening to this uh, who might be a generation or two behind us, you know, it's something that's a little bit lost now is how much, how important those demos were. Like you said, you know, the old, the Overkill demos and the and Metallica and Megadeth and, you know, a lot of bands in that demo era where uh, sometimes those tapes, I mean, for fans anyway, they were like albums. You know, you thought of it as, you know, No Life to Leather was like the first Metallica album to a lot of people. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how that's kind of a lost art because one of the things that I think was so important about that demo phase was an opportunity bands had to 
really develop a sound and an identity over the course of playing a lot of shows and doing regional touring and uh, and making demos, you know, to where by the time you were in the studio making your debut album, you had uh, a much more definitive sense of, of what you're doing. You know, I think that's that's something that's a little bit lost now where, you know, sometimes bands are making a record before they've even played a show. It's, it's, I mean, it's a unique uh, concept, you know, um, uh, that you bring up, and it, it, it really uh, does separate the old from the new school. Uh, and the demos, uh, you know, were part of that, uh, what what'd you call it before, a world of secret information or <laughs> yeah, network se- of secret, secret knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> secret knowledge. I mean, it's like if you had a demo uh, from, uh, you know, you had the Anthrax demo or if you had the Metallica or Slayer uh, tapes that had been released, uh, you were special. You know, I mean, and and that's where, in my opinion, sure, the, the records that followed define their career. But that's where the lightning in, in the bottle was captured, uh, even if it wasn't recorded well or the songwriting was not of uh, a higher caliber yet. It still was lightning in a bottle with regard to energy and direction. So you knew that this was the beginning of something big or or not in some cases where you go, no, this one just doesn't have it. But uh, if it had it on that demo, it was, and you were there at the beginning, then you were one of the chosen few. Yeah, and I remember also as somebody who, you know, and I still this, I still do this today. If I discover a film director or something that I'm really inspired by, I'll want to go back and watch the early stuff. And even if you can find like a, a student film or a short or something that they did, you know, I love kind of unpacking it and reverse engineering it. And that was something I did with bands back in the day too. Um, you know, uh, Feel the Fire and Taking Over, like, I already had those records by the time I got Power in Black, but it was, again, part of that, like, secret knowledge where it's like, I want to go back, you know, I want to find the demos, I want to, like, you know, get somebody to dub me a copy of that and, like, you know, to go back and sort of retrace the steps, so to speak, I always thought was was exciting, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think the thrash bands in particular were bands that were always very transparent about that, and uh, almost giving fans kind of a how-to guide of like how to, how to build a band, you know, I think that was well, you know, very cool. That's the, 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 the point is, is that thrash bands were fans of it as it was being created. It, it wasn't, we weren't over and above or next to, we were part of the, you know, the entire community as that community was growing. I mean, we might have been the ones creating it, but we were fans of what we were creating. So I think it was really easy to give those secrets away or to uh, to share them with others in that uh, through that uh, that secret knowledge. So, when did you first have occasion to meet the guys from Metallica? Well, obviously, that first time in uh, the State Theater. Um, I know that uh, you know soon after that, um, Bobby Gustafson had, had gotten pretty close with James, you know, and they were back and forth. And I remember by the time we had we were headlining the Ritz. Um, James was in town, came and uh, played Fuck You with us, um, nice. you know, on stage, sang the backgrounds. Uh, so it was Gustafson, and I think they were both playing Explorers. Or maybe he was, one was playing, Bobby had the same Flying V and Explorers James did, so it looked like James was holding his own guitar when he was up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, the Hello hello from the Gutter video, one of my friends at the time asking me, like, is James Hetfield in Overkill? <laughs> No, that's, that's a different guy with an explorer and skin tight jeans with holes in the knees and <laughs> long blonde it was, hair. It was, 
Yeah. It was uh it was really a cool uh uh duality of purpose there at one point with these guys. Oh, let me tell you something. We weren't the most open minded people back then, you know. <laughs> Are you sure this is cool, man? <laughs> I love it. I was uh, I was I was at the Ritz that that same show I remember and uh, I had I developed uh, uh, nodes or polyps on my on my vocal cords uh, after the Feel of Fire tour. I mean we oh, we wow. done Europe and then uh, geez, we done Europe and then we did Slayer um, yeah. while I was recording taking over while the vocals were to be done. So we didn't want to miss the tour. So we did this long Slayer tour. And man, I, I just couldn't go back and sing that. So I had to start taking these uh, vocal lessons, you know, and because they hadn't gotten so bad, I just strained it and they developed abrasions on the, on the chords. So I had to learn how to sing correctly to get those abrasions off. And, and to me, it's real obvious between the Feel the Fire record and the Taking Over record how my voice had changed because of those lessons. Mm. And I was standing at the Ritz. I was always a, a little bit uh, in the early day embarrassed of, you know, warming up in a room full of people. I didn't want to, you know, everybody's drinking beer and I didn't want to do that. So I would go somewhere privately. And I found this little like utility closet off the side of stage right in the Ritz down off of the dressing room. And I was in there doing my, you know, hallelujah, you know, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, where, where, so I'm listening to the voice up and then there's a, there's a knock on the door of the utility closet and it's James. And he goes, Don Lawrence. I said, Yep, Don Lawrence. He goes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a commonality from the early days. That is awesome. Uh, yeah, and like you said, it's something that, uh, yeah, a little self-conscious about because it, you didn't know anybody else who was doing it back then. Oh, sure, sure. And it's and it's a rough and tough approach as, as opposed to this, like, operatic approach. But the operatics were the things that, that made the, the rough and tough approach possible to do uh, night after night. Yeah, and I, if anything, I, I would imagine, you know, as tough as it was to suffer through the polyps and stuff back then, uh, what a gift it was to run into those troubles early enough to figure out what to do about it, because now here you are, you know, um, this far into Overkill's career, and your voice still sounds killer. And that that's not the case for, you know, a lot of guys who, because nobody knew when this kind of music started, like, what it was going to sound like in a couple decades, you know, it's because it's yeah, so physical. Uh, or, that you know? it, or that it would even be here, but uh, but you're yeah. 100% right. Some guys have lost it. James is one of the ones that hasn't lost. Yeah. I mean, I, I always appreciate what he does. And, uh, you know, I and I always think of him as a front man. I, you know, I've always worked on kind of being a front man, and it's always about um, what comes into my mind at the time. Um, and if I like it, I repeat it the next time. So it's just kind of a... I compiled it over X amount of years. And I always thought to myself, boy, I'd really love to be able to control an entire crowd by just tilting my head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking Hetfield can tilt his head and close one eye, and it's like, and he gets a response. I was like, that's yeah. not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something about that sort of tribal, communal, there's just there's a we could name all the bands that can do that right you know Maiden you know yeah <laughs> there's an ocean of people in front of them and they're all tuned in to the nuances of what one or two guys are doing it's uh, it's a powerful thing yeah awesome it's an insane thing it's interesting you were talking about the the voice um, you know I saw an interview with Hetfield where he pointed out I hadn't thought about it this way before but 
when they're doing the big four stuff, three out of four big four front men have had neck surgery. Like, oh. Mustaine, Mustaine Hetfield and, and Tom from Slayer have all had their necks operated on at some point from uh-huh. relentless headbanging. I never put that together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way either until he pointed it out. And it's like, yeah, it it makes sense, you know, when you, when you you know, nobody thought about in their early 20s, like, what's it going to be like doing this night after night all around the world on your body, you know? I guess we could we could have called it the broken three plus anthrax. Right? <laughs> well, and, 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 and I think anthrax slid by because they had different front men. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good <you> point. Know, <laughs> each, each guy got to take a few years off and come back. <laughs> have you uh, have have you experienced anything that you think was like a physical toll from the the physicality of thrash metal music aside from the polyps? No, I've always lived my life like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a teenager down the shore, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> I, I just, I don't think about it. I don't care. I mean, occasionally I get a twist or a, a pain here and there, but I've always kind of taken care of myself uh, simultaneously. Uh, I, I kind of know what my limitations are, even though they're, it's, it's a pretty, my limits are, are pretty far when it comes to, uh, you know, how I, how I perform. Uh, but I, I, you know, I've obviously have slowed down to some degree. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not 28 anymore. I'm 25. It's, um, you know, it's a different approach, but I, I think it's just adjusted, uh, to that time passing, you know, and yeah. again, if it works for me, I repeat it. If, if it hurts me, I don't repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, that's like that old joke, doctor. It hurts when I do this. Don't do that. <laughs> There's a, there was a guy I, I really, uh, I, um, connected with a singer from uh, an Irish band called Gamma Bomb. We took him out on the road for a couple of tours and Philip and I just have a, we just have that. I, I just like his Irish sense of humor and, you know, he's, he's always telling jokes. And I, so uh, Philip Byrne asked me about, uh, you know, fr- how I fronted the band and how I, you know, concocted all this shit. And I said, listen, man, I said, I didn't, I didn't make any of this up. All I did was steal the good stuff from, from other guys. <laughs> it's as simple as it is. So, <laughs> so, so borrow away, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> share and share alike. That's right. Yeah. You know, we tend to think about the the thrash sort of uh, architects as a community, and I and I know it is. But I, I wonder, you know, was it also was it competitive back in the day, especially like you know being label mates and probably going after some of the same tours and and all that sort of thing. Was it were you guys you know watching what each other was doing, or or were you kind of just focused, you know, on your, in your own lane the whole time. Well, you, you know, uh, I, I think if, if you ask most people, they would say, oh, no, there was no competition. But, but listen, the competitive edge is one of the reasons I like doing this. So I, I'd be an absolute liar to tell you that, uh, 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 you know, I, I don't pay attention to other people's porches when we're writing music. But for right. sure, when we're performing, it's all about, to me, it's all about competition. And it's all about burying that competition. I mean, it's uh, you, you know, in, in the in the nicest possible way. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I hate them. I'm saying that they inspire me to to do better. And I think that that's something Overkill has always had. I don't think it's just me in this band that thinks that. We when we step out there, we say this is our stage. So I do think in the early days that there was there was a friendly camaraderie. Obviously, uh, I remember meeting Gary Holt from from Exodus for the first time and saying things like it's. Uh, 
It's kind of like being long lost cousins that never met each other. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, man, I, did, I didn't want him to take that show. I wanted I wanted us to take that show. Uh, so it was, uh, let's say, a friendly competition that really, for sure, uh, inspired me and does to this day. Uh, it's not about oh, we're all friends, you know. Oh, uh, I, of course, I want my friends to succeed. I just want to succeed a little bit better. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's how the audience gets the best show. If every band is taking sure. the stage with that gang mentality, like they're, you know, they want to, they want to win the night. I, rem- I remember him walking off stage in 2007 and saying he was sweating his ass off, Gary. And he walks down this uh, ramp. I think it was in, we were in Spain, and he walks down the ramp. And we were going to go on in a half hour. And he goes, he goes, beat that. And I said, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's, I think it's with it, through the whole thing. Now, obviously, there was a couple of crooked smiles flashed at each other while that was happening. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't done with any animosity. But I, but I think somewhere in there, that shows you're right that the the crowd wins. Yeah, the crowd wins exactly. Yeah, and I, you know, there was there was a moment recently I've seen uh, Mustaine a couple times has complained that in the uh, behind the scenes documentary from the Big Four thing. There's a moment where, you know, Metallica's about to go on stage and they're getting their game face on and, and Kirk makes a comment to the effect of, you know, big four, no, it's the big one. And it's like, I don't, I don't think you should be offended by that because I, I think it's more, that's how a band should think right before you step on stage. You know, it doesn't mean you don't love all the other yeah. bands. It just means like, okay, now we want to, it's our turn. We're going to go out and, and dominate, you know. I think all, you know, all four bands should have felt that way. And I'm sure if there was a camera on <laughs> every one of them at every minute, you would have heard something out of somebody else too that could be misconstrued. But you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. In, I'm sure. And in Dave's Dave's dressing room too, could it be the uh, could could be that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and no disrespect to either one of those guys. I just think it's kind of like you know, you got to give and take there. Like it's as you said, it's a it's a friendly competition. And yeah, the audience the audience wins. I think I, I think it's great. I think it's one of the great aspects of this music. I, I got to ask you, and I kind of want to go, you know, backwards through the Metallica catalog with you a little bit. Uh, but I, I want to start actually with Lou Reed, only because I believe uh, you're a fan. And you know, we've Lulu, of course, has come up on the podcast before, but typically with people that weren't really fans of Lou Reed in the first place. Uh, so I'm I'm curious um, when that whole thing happens, or what your thoughts were on it, and you know, how it, how it struck you? Uh, let's say not my favorite. Um, you know, Lou Reed was more uh, an introduction into rock and roll with me. Mm. Um, I, I actually got into the Velvet Underground after uh, some of his solo career stuff. Uh, he'd done a record called Heavy Metal, and one of the best live records that uh, I think still to this day uh, is called um, Rock and Roll Animal. Mm. Um, and yeah. it was, uh, he put a band together, of the of fantastic musicians, um, uh, Dick Wagner, and Steve Hunter, um, who who actually did tons of the studio work for Alice Cooper, and oh, okay. they did this. Uh, yeah, they they open uh, Rock and Roll Animal with this um, uh, just this kind of uh, uh, introduction into a song called Sweet Jane, which is really just a big fucking five chord cruncher. It's uh, mm-hmm. the entire tune. Uh, but these guys, you know, set the tone in this for what was to follow with, um, you know, the way Thin Lizzy used two guitars, the way even Maiden, uh, used two guitars after, obviously, you know, with their, with their own style. But these two, first two, uh, Hunter and Wagner were the two guys in Lou Reed's band that 
just kind of opened that whole thing. And and anyone who's never heard that introduction and that first song on Rock and Roll Animal, it's really worth listening. I mean, it's just uh, tremendous guitar work, and it's it's one of the reasons I was attracted to Lou Reed, and actually saw him on that tour. But there was as much as I loved Blue Reed, uh, there was also stuff I really disliked about it. Um, I didn't like uh, the artistic approach as much as I liked his guttural approach to things, mm. uh, like the song Rock and Roll, uh, the song Heroin. I liked, um, you know, uh, I didn't particularly like some of the, the the versions of Vicious by by the Velvet Underground. I just didn't like the song very much, and I know it was one of their most popular songs. So when <clears throat> when Lulu came along. Obviously, I was interested. And you mentioned Sweet Jane, and actually that was uh, one of the songs Metallica, you know, when they backed Lou Reed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, that was one of the songs they did together. Yeah, and a, yeah, and a great version. Song. Yeah, yeah, great version. But I, I didn't like the record that much. It just, it never, um, I don't know, it never, whatever the idea was behind it, never got into me. Um, I yeah. just, uh, it just, it just didn't make it. Yeah. I've said this on the podcast uh, several times before, so I'll, I'll try to spare my listeners uh, hearing hearing it again. But but in short, like I totally respect, understand, and appreciate why they did it when the opportunity arose. I just think that once it was finished, it's the kind of thing that you put on a shelf somewhere, and maybe someday, years from now, you know, when the band's not in a position to tour anymore or something, it becomes one of those legacy releases that's like, oh, did you know? Once upon a time, Metallica did this whole weird record with Lou Reed, um, but you know, to give it kind of the full quarter press it, uh, as like a official release was really just uh, asking for it. Yeah, I uh, it just you know on paper, you know, I look at it on paper and I say, how fucking great is that, you know? But there's a lot of things on paper that you know that just don't come to fruition when you, when you put it yeah. into practice you know, that, that's and that's yeah. that's kind of the way i looked at it it almost comes across to me as the anti-metallica record you know it's the only one even including saint anger that i just that i've never been able to get through in one continuous listen <laughs> and i'm, uh -huh. and I'm a, you know uh -huh. i'm a super fan obviously but i also appreciate the uh i don't know i feel like somewhere in there maybe lars in particular um knows that it's terrible and sort of wanted to inflict it on us as its own artistic statement. <laughs> like, try to get through this, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, res I respect the, the punk rockness of that. <laughs> it's, you know. yeah, they, they, God, they got to dislike something we do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, there was a point there. Was a point there I mean, they could have farted for, for fucking 60 minutes and, and, and still the record would have went to number one. I mean, it was just... I think that, that was, was insane. What a maybe, role they were on. Maybe that was their attempt at disproving that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's like it's it's a cool idea on paper, but but not so much. But yeah, uh, a lot of the covers and different things that they've tried. You know, we're talking about the Ramones. Somewhere in that Saint Anger era, uh, they recorded like six or seven Ramones covers. Um, there's a bunch of them out there. I think they came out as Japanese B-sides, and there was a weird moment where they played a couple of shows with Bob Rock on bass, and uh, they did a bunch of those Ramones songs. Did you ever hear those or, or check those out at all? Yeah, Ramones I mean, band? primarily primarily on on uh, on the internet, uh, the revisited um, uh, recordings. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, it's not something that I keep around. I, I mean, I like the way they do punk stuff because they do it like thrash songs. Yeah. Um, so I always think that that's really cool that that approach to it. I mean, I, I mean, you probably know from us, we've always had that punk element in us. I mean, For we just sure. released something called 
Welcome to the Garden State on yep. uh, Wings of War. And, 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 you know, I was doing all these interviews for it. And, I mean, this, you could probably translate this over to the, the whole Metallica approach. And, and, you know, the, the question would be, you know, that has got to be the punkiest song you ever did. I said, for sure it's punk influence, but I said, it is just played too fucking well to be a punk song. And I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. not full of myself. I'm just saying it's, it's a thrash song because it's played with superior musicianship. You know, if you start that song with Jason Bittner, play a punk beat and then finish it off with me dropping the vocals on after everybody builds it. You have yourself, you know, one fucking solid, valuable piece of real estate. It's not, uh, it's not some attitude, attitude approach to it. It is, it is just about sonically perfect when it comes to it. And that's one of the things that I liked, uh, how Metallica could, you know, how they could present something that was so attitude, uh, laced, uh, so imperfect and then turn it into something that was, that was perfect. And that's what made the song different than the original, which is uh, what I appreciated in those Ramones covers. Yeah. You know, on a, on a related note, uh, I think that's what I love about their merciful fate medley. And obviously merciful fate has its own charms and, and uh, oddities and, you know, spookiness about it. Uh, and I like that Metallica took, you know, obviously Edfield wasn't going to do the King Diamond falsetto. So they, he sort of figured out his own, approach to those vocals and and yeah it's like a, a sort of streamlined perfected version of, of something that's really cool on its own because it's so weird and off kilter that they're able to then take the the spare parts of it and refine it and, and yeah i think that, that i mean you probably just explained what thrash is in general <laughs> like it took you know kind of the yeah. the the slickness of of heavy metal um, with the attitude uh, and aggression of punk, and and now we have thrash. You know, yeah, and you, and you can yeah, and if you can get sonic perfection out of it and still keep an attitude, fantastic. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you though, there's nothing I dislike more than somebody doing a cover that sounds like the original. You know, it's right. What's the point? Uh, to me, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, add your own, you know, add your own spices to it. You know, put your personality on it, your stamp. You know, I think that we're lucky that uh, in this band that when we do covers, uh, probably very much like Metallica, there there are distinguishable voices um, uh, presenting those 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 lyrics or those melody lines. Yeah. So it immediately it immediately becomes different. That's uh, that's the key. Now and, and now also the tonalities that we're, we're both bands are going to use. I mean, that's that's really uh, the key to that. But but keeping that energy or upping that energy is where. Uh, is where the uh, the X factor in the whole thing. Yeah, and that's where songs even really, you know, end up becoming a, a band's own. You know, when you obviously, you know, Subhumans, Fuck You is an overkill song to many people. And just like Am I Evil and Metallica and, uh, you know, Got the Time uh, and Antisocial with Anthrax. And, you know, that speaks to, like you said, putting your own unique voice and, and you know, putting it through your prism rather than just trying to do a note-for-note note, uh, redo. You know, I when I, I was just having this conversation with a guy <clears throat> about uh, the 80s bands, you know, that, that came out, and, and the ones that uh, still exist, you know, whether it be Exodus or Testament and Anthrax and, you know, all of them, the big four. The one <clears throat> thing that was different about that uh, uh, approach to metal than what has followed it was that each band had an individualist as a singer. Every one of them 
could be recognized by the voice. If you didn't recognize the production, you would know who it was when the voice came in. I think in the modern era, and it's not all, obviously, but in the modern era of new metal, uh, I think post Phil Anselmo's Pantera, you get a very similar approach to things. Unless you are like the, the fan of that band or, or totally aware of that band, it could be in some cases half a dozen different bands uh, where, where the distinguishable element kind of goes away. And I think, I think it's something that uh, this genre has as kind of the last Cowboys is that yeah. individualism with, uh, with regard to approach of the vocals. Yeah, uh, where it's not so much about the nuance of the different tones and things to identify it as it is uh, the, just the person's voice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so-and-so yeah. singing. Tonal- yeah. Yep, tonality. That's anthrax. You know you know Joey's voice as soon as he opens his mouth. You know, I mean, I, I know anthrax by a riff, and I think uh, the way Charlie plays. But I think if you were a casual fan, you would say, you would know that's not Metallica or that's not Megadeth. That is anthrax. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought about it that way because there was there is sort of a uniformity of vocal style that has dominated metal in recent years, and yeah, that there's for sure something to be said for uh, that identity, which I think you, you know, of the thrash movement when it comes to identifiable voices. I mean, you would definitely be in a top four, you know, in terms of like, oh, that's Blitz, you know, nobody, nobody's, you know, no one who is a fan of this music won't recognize, you know, your voice right at the top of a song. That's for damn We sure. call it, well, when we're recording, we call it Mickey Mouse on meth. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Um, <laughs> Mickey Mouse on meth. Copyright Disney. <laughs> don't, get, don't get sued. Mickey Meth, maybe is a somebody. somebody somebody's going to draw that character for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got yeah, we got to make a T-shirt. Yeah, I was going to say that's an overkill T-shirt. The the Blitz is Mickey Meth. <laughs> you know, on the uh, on the Metallica front, you know, we all sort of love the classics, and of course, uh, you know, everyone loves Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. And are there any uh, sort of deep cuts or? Uh, you know, album tracks that uh, have been favorites of yours over the years that maybe wouldn't maybe wouldn't be so obvious. Oh, geez, um, I don't know. I I think you know. I have to say, I'm obviously aware of uh, of all that they've done, uh, but uh, not at the high level I was up until let's say the Black Album. Um, mm-hmm. I started going to. Uh, going different ways, you know, at that, at that point. Um, I liked, uh, their live stuff too. I, I do like, um, binge and purge. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's, you know, because that to me, I mean, that, that's the purity of, of what this is all about. I, I think that, you know, this is obviously a pre pro tools genre. Uh, mm-hmm. we've all, we've all adapted to it as time goes on. And, and it's obviously made this easier and it's, you know, technology is a great thing. But um, when when I think of uh, when I started listening less uh, or becoming less connected, uh, it's probably around the same time that technology changed, um, that my favorite records were, were done on two-inch tapes or recorded live um, on, on uh, DAT tapes, which I, you know, so for, for me to hear, you know, stuff on that live record, I think that it's real special because that's the way the songs were created 
originally. And and to go to Binge and Purge and hear Whiplash, uh, for instance, is a little bit more special to me than hearing it on on uh, the first record. Yeah, I, I totally hear that, and especially that something about that attack and that aggression that comes out in those live versions, uh, especially when a band is at its peak and you know in the midst of a two hundred date to world tour, um, and then you to capture that and put it in a bottle is uh, super exciting. And that's and that's the purity of of the whole thing. I mean, sure, making a record is a great thing. I mean, and p- people liken it to art. You know, I I, I kind of liken it to uh, you know being a craftsman uh, more than being an artist uh, by just getting better at your craft. Uh, but I think that the the purity. What I mean is that those songs were created, um, you know, in the room somewhere. Uh, you know, maybe one guy coming up with that riff and then bringing it to the other guy who put the drum tracks to it and. And then Kirk coming in with, uh, you know, with a lead. Uh, it, so it was assembled and it was finally was done. Uh, you know, it, from my experience, you fucking know it. You're like, you're yeah. there, you're going, oh my God, it's fucking done. We may not be playing it perfectly right, right at this point, but this is the purest that this song is ever going to be. Now to go on later on, so many years later and capture that purity again in a live setting, uh, I think is, is, uh, um, one of the greatest accomplishments you can do. I mean, we just recently, uh, you know, last couple of years, we did a thing called Live at Overhausen in uh, Germany, and we re- yeah. we recorded Feel the Fire <clears throat> from start to finish. So the you know you know the key here is not the okay not let's not fuck up. It's like let's not think about it because if we start thinking about it, we're going to lose what the charm of the song was in its purest sense when we when it first meant something to us. Now, I think that that's how we succeeded with that record, not uh, over-practiced or, or worried about fucking up parts. Oh, God. Amen to that. You guys were putting out Killer Live stuff even back in the day. I, don't, I know I told you this story before, but, you know, my Fuck You EP uh, had the the cassette had the reversible cover <laughs> where the, uh, where the, oh, rec- yeah. where the record yeah. store could hide the middle finger. And, yeah, I mean, that was, that was perfect. That was the best way as a kid in high school to get away with that tape with my dad. <laughs> So, yeah, and, then, so then, then slide it between the mattresses, right? Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I'll tell you, we had this. We had this great back in '87. I was uh, I was living in a different part of Jersey, and uh, uh, I was down by uh, where the old Bridge Metal Militia was um, yeah. in in that area, and hanging out with these guys. And I mean, shit, I was putting in ceiling fans during the week to to make a few bucks, but I was already you know touring with Overkill. And I was approached by uh, a high school art teacher who, who asked if he would, if he could do rims at the time. Yeah. You know, it made the, made the stage look bigger and he was going to let his art class do it for us. Um, so just give him the dimensions, uh, the cloth and he'll supply, you know, the paint he wants to do it. And I said, Hey, this is great, uh, but we have scrims ready. Well, we could do secondary scrims for you. And I said, well, the only ones we need for, are are for uh, the song "Fuck You." He's like, I'd love it. This <laughs> tenth <laughs> <laughs> grade art class <laughs> go to school every day. The parents think they're becoming artists. <laughs> they're painting metal fingers. Metal <laughs> <middle> fingers. These <laughs> two big scrims that we used for years. <laughs> uh, that's so great. That's the, that's the teacher of the year right there, too. Kudos. Yeah, to he is, man. I was. That's an open-minded cat. 
<laughs> and I mean, you know what? It is art, and that their art was then traveled all around the world with you. So, it's, sure. And, and hey, listen, art is not about being safe. It's about being. It's about taking a chance somewhere. And I and I think that this guy proved that with the to those kids. Hell yeah. Well, well, why I've got you? I want to. I want to just say, you know, I, this run that Overkill has been on. I I would say. As a fan, you know, I would start it with Electric Age, you know, and that going into White Devil and Grinding Wheel and, and then this new record. I mean, it's just, you know, for journalists to want to tell a story of, like, Overkill is really just on a roll. It's like, well, I mean, it's record after record after record now. <laughs> like, what do you attribute that to, sort of this, this creative streak of um, just putting out some of your best records, you know, at this stage in your career? I mean, is it... Is it about just kind of refining what you do or, or not fucking too much with the recipe? Or, you know, what do, what do you attribute that to, to how the material has continued to just be consistently this good? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, I get it, too. I feel it from the inside. Uh, I, I think the the key for us is not overthinking it. I mean, we're not we're not a band that over-talks. You know, you, you, you could, some people can... You know, some people can can fuck up a free lunch. You, you, you know what I mean by, <laughs> by over talking. <laughs> we're not this huge communicative band. We're we're more about enjoying the time that we have together, and then good results come out of it. Um, and and I think that uh, because we're fucking old, we don't give a shit. <laughs> 